Of all the reasons people give for rejecting Christianity, this one stings the most. The church is full of hypocrites. And it stings because it's directed at us, not the faith. In other words, people aren't walking away from God because they have a problem with the Bible or with miracles or with all the pain and suffering in the world. They're walking away from God because they have a problem with us, with people who claim to have a relationship with God but don't live like it. A hypocrite is a person who says one thing and does another. A hypocrite is a person who claims to be noble or kind or good, but in fact is none of those things. A hypocrite is a pretender, a phony, a fake. Now, when people talk about hypocrites in the church, they're most often talking about some high-profile Christian leader, a, a pastor or a musician or an athlete who is implicated in some financial or sexual scandal. As I was writing these words literally two days ago, as I was writing this paragraph, I received an email reporting allegations that were being made against one such high-profile Christian leader. Maybe you've heard about them. Bill Hybels is the senior pastor of Willow Creek Community Church, one of the largest churches in the country, and is the founder of the Global Leadership Summit, which we host here at Grace every summer. In recent years, several people have come forward and have charged Bill with inappropriate conduct towards some female members of his staff, involving things like sexual innuendo and uncomfortable situations. Now, Bill has emphatically denied all of the allegations. The elders of Willow Creek Church have conducted an independent investigation and have cleared Bill of any wrongdoing. At the same time, there are some very credible voices who are calling for further scrutiny and raising some very legitimate concerns. At this point, it's too soon to jump to conclusions and we're not prepared to take any kind of position on this. The news is only two days old. But we're deeply concerned and unsettled by these kinds of allegations. When a Christian leader is accused of hypocrisy, it's a very unsettling experience. But when people talk about hypocrites in the church, they're not just talking about high-profile leaders. They could be talking about a coworker or a neighbor or a family member who makes a big deal about their faith and their involvement in church, but in the end is just not a nice person. They're mean or they're dishonest or they're lazy around the office. The truth is, people could be talking about any one of us. Any one of us who act one way in church and another way at home or at work or at school. Now, this charge, the church is full of hypocrites, has been around for a long time. But it seems to have gathered momentum in recent years. Some surveys have suggested that Christians aren't all that different in their moral behavior from the rest of the population. Recently, Christians are being accused of compromising their moral convictions to gain political power. Pastor Tim Keller from New York City recently wrote this in an article in the New Yorker. He writes, 
Evangelical used to, used to denote people who claimed the high moral ground. Now, in popular usage, the word is nearly synonymous with hypocrite. Ouch. That hurts. It stings. It stings not only because it's directed at people like us. It stings because it might be truer than we'd like to admit. That hypocrisy not only contributes to the brokenness of the world, but it suggests that something is broken in us as well. Well, today we come to the final week in our Lenten series called Broken. For seven weeks now, we have been looking at things that are broken in the world and in us. And you may be happy to know that's the last time you'll have to watch that video of those beautiful objects being smashed to smithereens. And really, you can give yourselves a pat on the back for making it through some tough subjects and for spending seven weeks in some of the most unfamiliar and challenging books of the entire Bible, the so-called minor prophets, who it turns out pack a pretty mighty punch. So let's put our timeline up on the board one more time on the screen. So far in our series, we have considered Hosea, Joel, Amos, Micah, Habakkuk, Zechariah, and Haggai. And today we come to the last of the prophets, Malachi. I'm sorry to disappoint the Italians in the crowd, but his name is not Malachi, okay? He was Jewish, just like the rest of them, okay? Malachi. As you can see, Malachi prophesied to the southern kingdom of Judah after their return from captivity in Babylon. And Malachi's words are the last recorded words of the Old Testament. And the Old Testament, turns out, does not end with a whimper. It ends with a punch in the gut and a ray of hope. So today we come to the final entry in this list of human failings that we've been compiling for these past seven weeks. So far we have considered faithlessness, corruption, injustice, violence, materialism, indifference. And today we'll add to the list hypocrisy. Seven things that are broken in us and in the world. And as we work our way through this short book of Malachi, we'll be asking ourselves, is the church really full of hypocrites? Could you and I be one of them? And if so, what, if anything, can be done about it? So let's jump into the opening words of Malachi, chapter 1, verse 1. A prophecy, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. Now, as we said, Malachi was the last of the prophets. His name actually means messenger. And that's what the prophets were. The messengers spoke for God to the people. Their mission was to confront the people over their sin and their waywardness to warn them of the consequences if they were to continue in their sinful ways and to urge them to turn back to God before it's too late, to God who was eager to restore them and to bless them. 
As we've pointed out, the prophets were extreme. They were radical. They were blunt. They were intentionally unbalanced and unfiltered because they were determined to get people's attention, to shake them, and to get them to respond before it was too late. And so the prophets were usually not well received. People didn't like listening to them. They told them to stop. They told them to go off and find other people to preach to. They, they disputed the prophet's accusations. They rushed to defend themselves. Hey, wait a minute, they might have said. That's not true. That's not fair. That's not the whole story. And we're going to pick up some of that pushback, some of that give and take between prophet and people as we make our way through Malachi's book here. In fact, the book is basically a series of disputes between the prophet and the people, or more accurately, between God and the people. Let's look at that first dispute, verse 2. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you ask, how have you loved us? Now, how's that for the opening line of a conversation? You turn to a dear friend or family member and you say, you know, I have always loved you. And they look back at you and say, oh yeah, how have you loved me? I mean, that conversation's not headed in a good direction. <laughs> That's how this conversation begins. Now, what's happening here? Well, Malachi is prophesying some 70 years after the people return from captivity from Babylon and arrive in Jerusalem. So the people have already been restored to the promised land. They have already rebuilt the walls of the city. They've already rebuilt the temple. And so they are able now to, to work and to raise their families in relative peace and security in a season of stability. So good things have happened. But after 70-some years, the wonder and the joy of it all have kind of worn off. And the land is not as fruitful as they remembered it being. And this second rebuilt temple is not nearly as grand as Solomon's was. And by the way, it's been a long time since the days of Elijah and Elisha, when, when, when God worked miraculously among the people, when the other nations feared the God and the people of Israel. And in those 70 years, a, a new generation or two has come of age. A generation that, that didn't experience that return from exile. A generation that didn't participate in the rebuilding of the temple and the city. A generation that, like all emerging generations, is beginning to question the faith of their fathers and their mothers. They're wondering if God is really paying attention and if all this religious activity is really worth it. And that doubt, that cynicism, comes to the surface right in this opening dispute. When the Lord Almighty says to them, I have always loved you, they say, how have you loved us? They push back. Now, before we're too hard on the people of Israel for pushing back against the prophets for refusing to listen, let's just pause for a minute and consider how difficult it can be for us to face our own sin and brokenness. I wonder how many times in this series we have felt like defending ourselves, 
like explaining ourselves. Hey, wait a second. That's not the whole story. Hey, wait a second. I'm, I'm, I'm not corrupt. I'm not violent. I'm not a materialist. On a somewhat regular basis, I get letters or emails from people who are saying that we, that we need to hear some more sermons about sin. Now, I agree, we need to hear sermons about sin. But in my experience, when people talk about hearing more sermons about sin, they're usually talking about other people's sins. <laughs> Not so much their own. If you felt uncomfortable at points in this series, as I have, it's probably because the prophet is on to something, even when we're tempted to explain ourselves or to push back a little bit. So I'll encourage you again to listen with a receptive heart. So we shouldn't be surprised that people are pushing back against the prophet's message. We don't like being called hypocrites either. But in these next few verses, or throughout the course of the book, Malachi is going to call out four kinds of hypocrisies. Hypocrisies of, of their day and our day. And if you haven't felt uncomfortable yet in this series, I'm pretty sure you're about to. But that can be a good thing. So the first hypocrisy I'll call half-hearted worship. Half-hearted worship. Let's look at verses 6 through 8 of chapter 1. This is the Lord now speaking through Malachi. A son honors his father and a slave his master. If I am a father, where is the honor due me? If I am a master, where is the respect due me? Says the Lord Almighty. It is you priests who show contempt for my name. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? The Lord is reminding his people who he is to them, a loving father and a rightful Lord. And those relationships would seem to call for honor and respect. But the people, the spiritual leaders in particular, are dishonoring and disrespecting God. And notice the pushback. How have we shown contempt? And so the dispute begins. The Lord responds in verse 7, by offering defiled food on my altar. When you offer blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice lame or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you? Says the Lord Almighty. Remember, the sacrificial law required that people bring their first and best to God as an offering. Not their leftovers, not things of lesser value, but their first and their best. And so the people were pretending to honor God by bringing offerings, but they weren't bringing their best offerings. They were bringing blemished animals. They were bringing things they didn't really value anyway. They were going through the motions of worship, but their hearts were not in it. So let's pause for a moment and ask if we have ever been guilty of half-hearted worship. Do we consistently offer God our first and our best? Do we make Sunday worship a priority? 
or do we fill in everything else on the calendar and make it to church as we're able to? And when we're worshiping, do we go through the motions of singing and praying while all the time our minds are occupied with that situation at work or with our plans for the afternoon or our basketball bracket? Half-hearted worship. The second hypocrisy Malachi calls out is failed relationships. We'll skip down to chapter 2 and verse 10. Do we not all have one father? Did not God create us? Why do we profane the covenant of our ancestors by being unfaithful to one another? Malachi is reminding the people that their faith is based on a relationship with God, a covenant relationship in which God promises to be faithful to his people and he asks his people to be faithful to him. But the people have broken that faith, broken that covenant, broken relationship with each other and also broken them with him. And he gives two examples. Chapter 2, verse 11. Judah has been unfaithful by marrying women who worship a foreign god. Now, this was not a racial issue. This wasn't about marrying outside the tribe of Israel. There are plenty of examples in the scripture, positive examples of people marrying outside the tribe of Israel. Ruth and Boaz, for instance. This is not a racial issue. This is a spiritual issue. Instead of building their marriages and their homes on God and his ways, the people are establishing divided households with one parent worshiping the God, Yahweh, the God of Israel, and the other parent worshiping and following some foreign God. That was not going to be good for their marriage or for their children or for the community of faith. The second example involved unfaithfulness and divorce. Verse 14. It is because the Lord is the witness between you and the wife of your youth. You have been unfaithful to her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. The man who hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord, the God of Israel, does violence to the one he should protect. Now the prophet is reminding the people that marriage is not just a legal contract, it's a sacred contract covenant. It is a lifelong commitment between two people. And when that covenant is broken, whether through infidelity or even through divorce, damage is done. Hurt is experienced because a covenant has been broken. And that's, that's why Jesus says whoever divorces his wife and marries another is guilty of adultery. Now he's not saying that divorce and adultery are the same thing. He's simply saying that adultery and divorce both involve the breaking of a covenant. And when covenants are broken, people are hurt and damage is done. They involve failed relationships and failed relationships always hurt. Ask anyone who's lived through any kind of failed relationship. They hurt. Now we understand and the Bible understands that in a fallen world, sometimes divorce is the only way to end a destructive relationship. 
But even then, it's a tragic situation. There's been a failure of something that was meant to, to last a lifetime. So Jesus says it's, it's a tragedy even then. Now, we don't have time to get into all this, but the good news of the gospel, of course, is that there is no sin that cannot be forgiven. There is no situation that cannot be redeemed in the grace of God. So before we move on to the next charge, let's pause and consider this one for a moment. How many of us have failed relationships in our past or in our present? Have we broken faith with someone that we love? A friend? A family member? Maybe a brother or a sister in Christ? If we have, have we confessed it? Have we repented of it? Have we taken whatever steps are reasonable to try to restore that relationship? Remember, hypocrisy isn't about sinning. Hypocrisy is about sinning and pretending you didn't. Hypocrisy number three. Neglecting the disadvantaged. Let's jump ahead to chapter 3 and verse 5. So I will come to put you on trial. I will be quick to testify against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress widows and the fatherless, and deprive the foreigners among you of justice. But do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. We have to remember that God's heart is always inclined toward the poor, toward the needy, toward the vulnerable, towards the disenfranchised. Which makes me think in this season of March Madness, if God filled out a bracket, he would always choose the 16th seed. Right? He'd always go for the, the small school. We're, we're talking basketball for those who are wondering what's going on here. <laughs> I meant to cue the translators about this. I'm sorry, but uh, he'd go for the small school, for the underdog. You get the point. God's heart is always for the weak, for the vulnerable, for the disadvantaged. And all kidding aside... Most of us in the Western world, in the Western church, in the American church, need to confront our neglect of the disadvantaged. Micah calls attention to four groups of people who were disadvantaged in ancient Israel. Laborers, widows, orphans, and people from other lands. Now, they may have been travelers, they may have been immigrants, they may have been refugees. And speaking for God, Malachi calls on advantaged people, people who owned lands and houses and employed laborers, people who came from stable families, people who were Jews by birth. He called upon those people who enjoyed those advantages 
to be attentive to and responsive to those who were disadvantaged. And the Lord asks the same thing of those of us who enjoy advantages today. I know this gets uncomfortable sometimes for people, but it's actually a very simple and straightforward concept. Let's, let's, take, let's take one of one of Malachi's examples, foreigners, and apply it to our situation today. People who were born in this country have an advantage over people who have emigrated to this country. Now, that doesn't mean people who were born in this country have had an easy life. It doesn't mean people who were born in this country are bad persons. It just means they have a certain advantage being born in this country over those who have come from another country, who have come from another culture, who speak another language, who don't have the kind of relational connections that might open doors of opportunity or provide a safety net when life goes wrong. Their physical appearance may set them apart from the majority culture. And those things are disadvantages. Now the truth is we all have a set of advantages and disadvantages. For example, you may have the advantage of being born in this country, but you may have the disadvantage of being a woman in a male-dominated environment or industry that you work in. We all have advantages and disadvantages, some more so one than the other. But however you find yourself, whatever situation you're in, the Lord asks those who have advantages to be attentive and responsive to those who are disadvantaged in one way or another. Whether they're disadvantaged because of their ethnicity or because of their gender or because of their orientation or because of their age, or because of their socioeconomic status, or because of their physical or cognitive abilities, or even because of their inability to speak for themselves, as is the case with unborn children or the elderly infirm. Are we attentive to these kinds of people in our circles? Are we aware of the fact that some of them might be missing from our circles? Are we willing to listen to them long enough to understand the challenges they're facing and to be able to respond generously and thoughtfully to their disadvantage? Now, there may be all variety of ways of addressing any of those disadvantages, and people may not always agree on the best way to address those advantages. But denying and neglecting the disadvantaged is not an option for the people of God. If you're still not uncomfortable, you will be next. Because the final hypocrisy is stingy stewardship. Chapter 3, verse 10. Will a mere mortal rob God? 
yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? Hear the dispute? In tithes and offerings. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Now, we won't spend a lot of time on this because it's fairly obvious and we've talked about it many times. The problem wasn't that people weren't giving to God. It's simply that they were holding back on their giving. Instead of bringing the whole tithe, the 10% as the law required, they were bringing 7% or 5% or 3%. Instead of being generous in their offerings to the poor, they were putting measly, miserly amounts in the offering plates, sometimes to great trumpets and the clink of coins. They were pretending to be generous, but they were not. And they were in fact robbing God and robbing others of what was meant for God and meant for others. So again, we're not going to get into a whole discussion about tithing and stewardship here, but just a few simple questions. Are we truly honoring God with our giving? Or are we holding something back because we're afraid to trust him or to let go? Are we giving less than we could? Less than we should, less than we'd like to. Are we spending on ourselves what God gave us to share with others? Stingy stewardship. And so there you have it. Four hypocrisies of Malachi's day and ours. Half-hearted worship, failed relationships, neglecting the disadvantaged, and stingy stewardship. Chances are, one of those shoes fits, if not a few of them. The truth is, we're all hypocrites. We're all guilty of one of these things or another. And so is the church full of hypocrites? Unfortunately, yes. Because it's full of people like you and me. People who sometimes will say one thing and live another thing. People who will act one way in church and another way at home or work or school. People who from time to time will pretend to be better than we are. So what's the answer? What can be done about this? Well, the answer really is pretty simple but profound. And Malachi offers it to us. Return to the Lord. That's it. Return to the Lord. Chapter 3, verse 6. I, the Lord, do not change. And so you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. The answer to hypocrisy and to every other sin is not to try harder. Because no matter how hard we try in our own strength, we will never get it right. You know why? Because we're broken. Because we're broken on the inside. Because something's wrong on the inside. 
And until what's broken can be made whole, until what's wrong can be made right, we will never be the good, kind, generous, faithful people that we want to be, that we were meant to be. The only one who can make us whole again is the one who made us in the first place. The one who began this whole conversation by saying, I have always loved you. God has always loved you. Return to me, the Lord says, and I will return to you. With those words, Malachi reminds us what our faith is all about. And it is not about keeping rules. And it is not about being religious. It is about enjoying a relationship with God. The God who made us, the God who loves us, the God who is eager to bless us and to bless the world through us. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing there will not be room enough to store it. Then all nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land. To those post-exilic prophets who were uh, 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 post-exilic uh, hypocrites, rather, who were holding back their worship and holding back their wages in a desperate attempt to provide for themselves, the Lord says, just try me. Just trust me. And I'll throw open the floodgates of heaven for you. To that cynical, skeptical, emerging generation questioning their parents' God, the Lord says, try me, test me, and I'll do more good for you and through you than you ever imagined. And to us, Christ followers in greater Boston in 2018, the Lord says, try me, trust me, and I will do so much good through you, for you, and, and for the world through you. Just try me. And so we come back to our very first lesson in this series. What's broken can be restored when we name it, lament it, and turn from it to the only one who can make us whole. What's broken can be restored when we name it, lament it, and turn from it to the only one who can make us whole. Friends, none of us wants to be, want to be hypocrites. None of us want to be phonies or pretenders. None of us want to be the reason someone walks away from God. We want to worship God with our whole hearts. We want to be faithful to the people that we love. We want to have compassion for those who are disadvantaged. We want to be generous with all that God has given us. And we were meant to be those things. But, but the answer is not to try harder. The answer is to turn sooner. The answer isn't to try harder in our own strength to be and do certain things. The answer is to turn sooner to the God who's able to help us do and be those things. The God who can heal us and help us and make us whole on the inside. And that's where Malachi points us in the end. After some of the most hard-hitting words in all of Scripture, Malachi's final words are words of hope. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. 
He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents. Those are the final words of the Old Testament. The next words that come from the mouth of a prophet will be the words that come from an Elijah-like figure named John who said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Behold, the Lamb of God who heals the world's brokenness by taking it on himself. That great and dreadful day began when Jesus came here to be with us. And there at Golgotha on the cross, where God's judgment was poured out on all that's broken in the world and us, it was done there. And so God began that work, that work of healing and restoration. And he, he does that work in the human heart as he turns our hearts towards one another and towards him. Friends, God has always loved you. And he's always loved me. And all he asks is that we stop pretending to be better than we are. All he asks is that we stop trying to fix ourselves and each other and the world in our own strength. All he asks is that we turn to him in faith and trust him to heal us and to help us and to make us whole. And friends, that's what this Holy Week is all about. Turning to him. And so I pray in the week to come, you will intentionally turn towards him. You can do that all alone as you spend some time each day this week in scripture and prayer and reflection on your own wherever you are. You can do that by coming to sacred spaces in Lexington or in Wilmington. And allowing those spaces to guide you through some of these themes. You can do that by coming out on Good Friday. Where we celebrate together the Lamb of God who took the brokenness of the world upon him. And you can do that by showing up on resurrection morning. Where we celebrate the God who, who, who conquered sin and death. And we learn how we and this world can be made unbroken. That's where we're headed this week. But today... Let's conclude our message and our series with one more prayer of lament corporately as we invite God to heal us and to help us. So I'm going to ask you again to join us across all of our campuses and venues or even at home if you're watching somewhere. And let's pray this prayer aloud together. God of our ancestors, you chose for yourself a people and you made covenant after covenant with them to assure them of your everlasting commitment and steadfast love. Yet time and time again, your people have broken those covenants. We do the same today. We make promises we do not keep. We agree to commitments and then back away from them. We say we will give our time and treasure to you and to those in need, but then find it hard to follow through. Look upon us with mercy, Lord Jesus. Forgive us for our pretending, and help us to live and love in your strength, for your glory, for our joy, and for the good of the world. In your holy name we pray. 
Lord, we thank you for this season that you have, by your spirit and your word, guided us through. We're thankful that we've been able to make this journey here in the community of faith as together we listen and understand each other even as we try to listen and understand you. We pray, Lord, that by your Holy Spirit, each of us would hear whatever we need to hear individually and that we might hear what we need to hear collectively as your people, the church. That we might more fully be the people you would have us to be, the people we were made to be, the people the world needs us to be. Not hypocrites, not pretenders, but genuine followers of, followers of Jesus Christ who loved us, died for us, rose again, and will come again someday to make all things right. In his name we pray, amen.